You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Yehili, the Tokyo Bureau Chief at the Washington Post, covering Japan and the Korean Peninsula. Today, we continue our Race in America series with Eva Chen, the Director of Fashion Partnerships at Instagram. Thank you, Eva, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Are you in Tokyo right now? I am. It is 11 p.m. in Tokyo. <laughs> Gosh, I thank you for uh, staying up late for me. I really appreciate it. We're thrilled to have you. And um, as a reminder to our audience, we want you to join in on our conversation. So please tweet your questions and comments to the handle post live. And let's get started, Eva. It's so great to meet you. It's really nice to meet you too. Thanks again for having me. Of course, thanks for being with us. Uh, let's start with your book. Tell us about the inspiration behind I Am Golden. Sure, it's like right here behind me in my setup. Um, so I Am Golden is actually my eighth children's book, which is just like boggles my mind to kind of think that I've written eight children's books. Um, this one is for sure the most personal. Um, the book came about, I wrote it during the COVID-19 crisis and the COVID-19 crisis was obviously difficult for the entire world over for obvious reasons, but um, it was a period of a lot of reflection for me because as we know, during the uh, COVID-19 crisis, there was a spike in anti-Asian hate crimes. And so I was going through a time where, you know, I was raised in New York City. I'm a proudly first generation American. And for the first time ever, I had to call my parents and tell them like, wear a hat, wear scarves, wear sunglasses, don't speak Chinese on the street, never go out by yourself. And to think in 2022, you know, that this was happening in New York City. And my parents at the time were like, no, you know, we live in New York, this couldn't happen. But sure enough, there were, um, a, you know, there's a huge uptick in crimes, especially per perpetuated against Asian elders. So um, I started thinking about ways to explain this to my children. I started thinking about ways like, how would I talk about pride? What is the book I wish I'd had growing up? And that's um, how I Am Golden came about. It's, I call it a manifesto um, for Asian joy. Um, and there weren't really books like this growing up for me. I, I, I don't recall a single book growing up when I was about seven, eight, nine years old that had an Asian protagonist on the cover, looking joyful, looking like just like fiercely happy. And so um, I'm really proud of this book because it is my family history. Um, and uh, yeah, book number eight, lucky number eight. Lucky number eight. Uh, well, that's a really great overview, and I, I definitely want to dig into um, your personal experience and, of course, the moment around um, API hate, anti-Asian anti hate. But um, I want to get some more into this book because, I, I mean, I read it. I actually got a little emotional reading it because I also wished that I had a book like that growing up where it was just empowerment and Asian joy and everything from the colors to the story to... Um, just the message of it all. So I want to dig in um, and look at some of the characters and pages from the book. Tell us about May, whose name means beautiful. So uh, May is the main character, the protagonist, and she is the daughter to, uh, you know, Chinese immigrants. And you can see in the spread that there's this dichotomy between like New York and the Statue of Liberty and the village and from um, they're from. So uh, like this is the spread in particular. Now, um, she's loved, her parents love her fiercely, but at the same time, they know that they can't 
always be there for her in this new world. Um, one of the lines from the book that I love is like, in this upside down world, you are the teacher and translator. And so um, when you look at this spread, I'm trying to like angle it, you can see on one side, the parents are standing there in Times Square, they're looking kind of uncertain, a little bit nervous. But when you flip the book over, you actually see that they're home in their village in China. Oh my gosh, like, how do I do this? And uh, you can see that they look confident and proud of their roots. And so as a first generation American, I always felt kind of in between, like I lived in between worlds. Um, you know, at school, I, I would speak in English, I would like, you know, just like, giggle with my friends in the schoolroom and we'd talk about the babysitters club and whatever books we were reading. But as soon as I got home, you know, I spoke purely Mandarin Chinese. Um, and uh, I still primarily speak in Chinese to my parents. I still call to make their doctor's appointments and, you know, help them with translation as needed. Um, and so I, I think that's the experience of a lot of first generation Americans where you feel like you live between worlds and cultures. And at the time I didn't quite understand, but now I see that as like an incredible benefit um, and an incredible advantage that I've had being able to go between worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that feeling of being in between worlds, code switching, depending on your situation, um, being the translator for your parents, I think that's such a, a relatable experience, certainly for Asian Americans and for immigrants overall. And um, I want to show a couple of the slides of the quotes that you mentioned so that um, for those who couldn't catch the, the book lifting, just so they could see it on the slide. Uh, because <laughs> I love the upside down, though. Uh, so yeah. One page reads, we see the hopes and dreams of your ancestors when we look at you. And there's another one that you showed earlier in this upside down world, clever child, you have become our teacher and translator. Just curious why you decided to write the book from the voice of parents rather than from May herself. Um, I think for me, the reason I wrote it from the parents perspective is just one that for me as a new parent, you know, when you are speaking with your children and you are reading books to them at night before bedtime. You know, every book is a wish for your child. Every book is like a hope and a dream for your child. And so I always wanted to write a book from the parent's perspective because it's like, um, you know, giving and kind of putting, giving voice to the unspoken hopes and dreams that parents might have. I grew up in a family where um, there was a lot of love, but it was shown uh, in, uh, what, what do they call it, acts of service, I guess, where it's like, it was all in the little details. So my parents would like bring me fruit when I was studying or they would, um, you know, pick up my favorite snack at the supermarket. It was all like kind of little show, they, they showed affection, but they didn't speak it per se. And so I also think this book was in a way therapy for me because it was like, you know, hearing what I think that I would have liked to hear when I was a child, um, explicitly here versus being shown. And so, um, you know, this is something that it's taken me a long time to understand that there are different ways of showing love, but certainly like the kind of love that you might see on sitcom television shows where it's like, I love you, honey, I'm so proud of you. I didn't grow up with that. Um, and so this book is kind of like a bridge for that. Michelle, did you have like extravagant praise and like, like outspoken showings of love when you were growing up? Not growing up, no. It's something that my family has really tried to adopt as I've become an adult and my mom has led this real charge to say I love you more. But our our family itself, like we're not really comfortable saying it, so we have a way to say it, which is you love I in Korean. 
because it's like a little awkward to say I love you. So we kind of say it backwards in a funny way. That's our way of expressing. But, you know, they shower with with fruits and food and, you know, we Asian parents just have a different way of showing love. Yeah, a different um, way. I remember the first time I like went over to a friend's house and like the mom was like, I love you, honey. I'm so proud of you. And I was like, like wow, this is like. Whereas um, it was just kind of different in our household, but like it was an extremely loving household, just like in our own unique way. Absolutely. Yeah. And ours too. And I think um, ha being able to have those conversations, being able to have a book that launches off conversations like that to talk about heritage, talk about pride and love. I think that is, that seems to be the conversation um, conduit that you're trying to provide through this book. And you know, your book opens with May's name and it really struck me because especially during this moment of um, pandemic and the anti-Asian hate, um, there's a big movement to really take back our names as Asian Americans, um, reclaim the names that perhaps as children we may have felt shame about or may have been bullied about um, and taken on different, more Anglo anglicized names. For example, I was born with Yehi, but I went by Michelle since I was a kid because no one could pronounce Yehi and they made fun of me. And starting the name, I'm um, starting the book with the beauty of this name, it just seems so powerful. And I wanted to get your thoughts on whether, you know, that was something that you consciously thought about and whether you hope to see the next generation really feel the pride about the names that they were born with. Oh, I hope so. I mean, my children, um, I have three and two of them are named after grandparents. So Tao is my son and he's named after Tao Nan, who was my grandfather on my mom's side. And Ren is part of my grandmother's name on my dad's side. Um, it it is incredibly important to feel the sense of pride. And I think that for me, it took me a while to get there. Um, I, it's not that I never felt pride before, but I do feel like the, during COVID, I, I spent a lot of time reflecting on my culture and you know how I grew up. And I think that the pride was like supercharged in a way and especially watching like attacks against my community, attacks against like older um, Asian people who looked like my mom and looked like my grandmother. Um, it really broke my heart and it filled this kind of like, it, I think I feel like there was like a sense of rage that this was happening. Um, and I've always been rather outspoken, but I definitely feel like I just kind of, I felt those like gates open up and just have it all kind of pouring out. So um, I don't think there's one way to be Asian. So, you know, I think that some, sometimes people will change their name back to like their given name. Sometimes people will like, you know, volunteer in uh, the community. Sometimes people will, um, whatever it is that people can do to kind of feel connection to their roots, um, there's value in that. Uh, and there's power and beauty in that. So um, I do see the next generation though, like when I think about my kids and like the teenagers today, especially, like I feel a lot of inspiration and I feel a lot of hope because I think that this is a generation that like, they will call you out. They will not stand for like nonsense. Uh, they will start a whole campaign on Instagram, like a hashtag campaign on Instagram that will sweep your feeds and your stories and your reels. And so um, I have a lot of hope for this next generation. Um, you mentioned earlier, and, and you also talked about your parents. So I wanna get a little more into your family's journey. 
Um, you know, you pour a lot of yourself into this book, it seems like, and you've talked about the living in two worlds. Um, so I want to just ask you about your family and your family story. And a note to our audience, we'll also take a look at some of the beautiful pictures of your grandparents and your mother when she was younger and uh, you as a child and your family today. So, you know, you already see these photos on the screen here, but tell us about your family and their journey. So my parents moved here. Oh, there I am. Oh my gosh, I'm so teeny. Uh, so <laughs> my my parents moved here in the 19. Oh, there we there we all are uh, for Christmas. So my parents moved here in the 19th. I was distracted by all the photos. I was like, oh my gosh, River was so tiny and cute. Um, now he's like this giant beast of a baby. Um, so my parents moved to the U.S. in the 1970s. My dad came over first. Um, and it was a very classic, I don't know if there's like an American dream story uh, kind of tale uh, that still persists, but at the time it was kind of that American dream story where he moved here with about like $80 in his pocket. He worked at Chinese restaurants. He was like delivering food um, for Chinese restaurants. And uh, my mom came over and they lived in Queens uh, when they moved here. And during COVID, I was asking my mom like, you know, what was the hardest part about moving here? Was it, um, you know, I am at, and I thought she would say something like, oh, the language or, um, you know, getting a job. And really she was like the deep loneliness. Um, and that really kind of like touched something in me. And I think I, I started writing I Am Golden just uh, a week or two later and I, that, that kind of still sticks with me, um, the feeling of isolation my mom felt. Um, but they, my parents worked, it, had a small business, like an import export business. Um, and, um, you know, I grew up in their store helping them. I feel like the work ethic that I have, I very much got from my mom and dad, who even now my dad is like always busy. I'm always like, you're retired. What are you so busy doing? And my mom and dad will be like, we're busier than ever. Like, you have no idea. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like when I retire, this is like not how I want to like act. I want to be sitting in like a warm chair that has, that's at a 45 degree incline, maybe with an umbrella and a sun hat glass of lemonade, cup of jasmine tea, maybe a romance novel. Like I have my whole like retirement plan mapped out in my head. Um, but yeah, the work ethic for sure came from my parents. I love all the visuals that you already have in place for your retired life. <laughs> it's a vision board. Uh, I'm like, I can't wait to retire. I'm like, I'm ready, I'm ready. And my parents were like, you have like 20 years to go at least. And I was like, take start it. Well, um, you know, earlier you mentioned having to have conversations with your parents about the this experience that is being Asian American in 2022, 21, 2020 in the pandemic. Of course, um, violence and discrimination against Asian Americans is not new. It's as old as our history in this country, in, in America, but it came really under sharp focus during COVID because of all of the anti-Asian rhetoric. Um, what was that? experience like for you having to have that conversation with them worry about their safety so many of us i think have had that call calling them and saying be careful when you go outside uh, tell us about like how you felt through that experience and how you coped with it oh i was just like constantly worried you know and i think that I am definitely a worrier in general and my parents kept brushing it off and said like no it's fine don't worry and then like 
two days later, there was an attack in Times Square with where a woman was like, I think on her way to church or leaving church and she was violently attacked, um, you know, and then there were the attacks in Chinatown. There were, were subway incidents and it, it was just like one kind of incident after another um, over the span of a year and a half. Um, of course, there were the shootings in Atlanta of the um, like massage therapists as well. And it's it's heartbreaking, you know, and you're right. You're so right, Michelle. This is like this is in the history uh, of Asian Americans in the US. And so when you think about the Chinese Ex Exclusion Act, when you think about, um, you know, uh, Vincent Chin or you think about uh, the Japanese internment camps, there is a history of this uh, in America with scapegoating. Um, and it is something that I think, unfortunately, not a lot of people know about. Um, I think there are only two states in the U.S. that are required to teach like uh, Asian American history as well. And that's something that is like a movement that I think um, like there's th there's a lot of change that needs to happen still. But it's a confluence of so many things like we don't have a lot of representation in media uh, and in Hollywood. And so you do often still see Asian stereotypes perpetuated in like movies and in TV shows. I think it, we are one of the minorities that is just like kind of still semi acceptable where they will make like Asian jokes or have um, actors speak in very thick, heavy accents, even though they're it's not necessary. It's like used as a like comedic foil. Um, and so I think there's a lot of change yet to come. But um, again, I am very hopeful about this new generation of youth. Um, like I look at my coworkers who are in their like 20s. I look at um, like I have cousins who are in their teens. I have like I live very close by to NYU and I just see this passionate, engaged community who are always protesting in Union Square. And I love it. It's like this is what, what the world needs right now. Yeah, you know, earlier when you talked about the rage you felt and the pride that you felt the past few years during COVID and, and seeing um, the community come together around to fight back against against anti-Asian hate, um, it has been a kind of a complicated couple of years for the API community, I think, because we have really seen what the country can do to the community when it feels like when it's scapegoating the community, um, how, how it feels to be Asian American during that time, the fear and the rage that comes with that, as well as the pride that we have embraced um, through the experience. And, um, at, you know, even despite all of the hate, despite all of the pain, it also coincides with a time when representation is increasing in many different areas. You know, it's still a long way to go, but pop culture wise, you know, Hollywood wise, we're seeing numbers increase and uh, more children's books, for example, coming out. And how can we facilitate more of these Asian American voices being represented throughout society, whether it's um, you know, voices on social media platforms like Instagram or books or on screen. How can we facilitate more of this Asian joy permeating throughout our our awareness? Totally. I mean, I think that first of all, like support these projects. And so when you think about like the when Simu Liu, uh, who is like the Marvel superhero and from Kim Kim's Convenience, Kim's Kim's, Kim's Convenience. Uh, you know, when he comes out in a Marvel movie, go see it. It's like, first of all, that movie like blew my mind. I loved it. It was so I, I teared up multiple times during the movie at awkward points that I was not supposed to tear up at because just to see like my family's 
traditions and cultures and taking your shoes off before you enter an apartment, you know, these little things in this like huge Hollywood blockbuster movie support projects like that um, and be outspoken about why you're supporting. Um, you know, Michelle Yeoh who is like just the phenomenal actress, like icon, like icon hero, you know, she's in a new movie, uh, Everybody Everywhere All at Once, I believe it's called. It's like, I plan to go see it and talk about it and share like its brilliance. Um, you know, also, like, if you're watching, like, you don't have to be Asian American to enjoy these stories. A good story is a good story. And so I'm not saying, like, hey, go buy my book, although, like, that would be great. Thank you for supporting uh, my book. But, you know, when you were at a bookstore, like, picking up books that have characters that look different from your children is so important. They teach about the concept of um, windows versus mirrors at school. I've been doing a lot of school reading, so I hear a lot about windows versus mirrors. So like a window is basically when a child is able to peek in and kind of look into a different life experience. And a mirror is a book that might provide like a sense of themselves, like they can see their own story mirrored in the book. And so you want books that are windows and mirrors. And so um, picking up books, I know that when I think about my children's library, um, I make a conscious effort to choose books with protagonists that have different color and texture hair than they do, different color and um, skin than they do, different body shapes than they do. Like, I love books about animals. I've written a book about animals, but at the same time, it's like you want books like Julian is a Mermaid or you want books that um, have just a different kind of uh, experience represented. So um, it's little steps like that. I feel like it can feel very, very overwhelming. Um, to, to kind of think about how do I stop Asian hate? How do I change this thing? It feels huge and like this huge thing hanging over our heads, but it really is the smallest steps. And every small step you take, you will feel more empowered. You will feel like you are um, making a small change and then they all do add up. And it is all about, about all of us working together. I think what I'm hearing you talk about is really amplifying each other's voices and amplifying our community um, and the great yeah. work that they're doing. Yeah. Um, well, you know, to that, to that point, growing up, was there a book or a movie or another project that helped you feel seen? Honestly, it's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. Not really. Um, there was the Babysitter's Club and one of the babysitters, her name is Claudia, um, and she was, I think, Japanese American and she was the coolest character, by the way. She had like the best style and like, so she was like one person that I remember being like, oh, she's Asian like me. But um, th there wasn't a lot growing up, to be totally honest. Like, I remember like representation that was like Connie Chung on the news. Um, and Claudia from the Babysitter's Club. And so this is what, one of the reasons why I am more hopeful about this next generation, um, because there's so much more, they're exposed to so much more. They have the opportunity to see themselves in so many other places. Um, but I didn't have that growing up, which is why I wanted to write the book that I didn't have growing up. I wanted um, my children to be able to see themselves or someone that looks like their mom or looks like their grandma on the cover of a book. So. Um, there wasn't a lot, quite frankly. I mean, I think for many people, probably like Harry Potter, Cho Chang was like, you know, but, but that is like such a small, minute character, which is why also like when you think about the Netflix, you know, blockbuster series, um, the, the, the summer I turned pretty into all the boys I've loved before, you know, the author Jenny Han, who's Korean American, it's like that to show like a teen girl played by Lana Condor, um, 
just being a regular teen, uh, you know, going through life teen things while being Asian. It's like, I think that's incredibly grounding and incredibly important. And they talk a lot about this in black culture as well, right? The concept of black joy and not just showing, um, you know, black people in roles of oppression or unhappiness, um, showing them day to day. And it's the exact same what we need in Asian culture as well, um, not to be othered and to be accepted as part of the fabric of this great country we live in. Right, and the hope is that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, whoever's asked the same question has many more works that they could cite and rattle off rather than just Claudia, who, you know, is great, but is Claudia. It's for great, me. but like, you know, I, I go to a children's bookstore now, even like, you know, a year or two ago when it was May and it was AAPI uh, Awareness Month, I would go to the bookstore and there would be like maybe nine books, 10 books. And I can, the fact that I can name them off the top of my head, it's like Watercress, Eyes That Kiss at the Corners, uh, The Paper Kingdom, Amy Wu and The Hunt for the Perfect Ball. Like there are maybe seven or eight of them that like that are at the top of my consciousness. Whereas if you asked me for a book about like, give me some books about animals that are like, you know, well known, I could be like The Very Hungry Caterpillar, all the Mo Willems books, this, that, you know, Ferdinand the Bull, like Corduroy, it's like the list goes on and on. And so we need more books about the Asian experience. Um, and I'm, I am hopeful about seeing all the new ones coming out though. And so I, I think the tide is changing, but it would change faster um, as more people embrace uh, these books. You know, how do you hope to continue to use your voice to elevate these issues and keep them in the mainstream in a sustained way? Um, because it, again, it's not a temporary thing that the APA community faces xenophobia and discrimination. Um, it is going to continue. It's going to be a matter of whatever the, the next wave is. Um, and you already have this platform, you have, you've written, you've been speaking about it. How do you hope to sustain the attention and the awareness on the experience um, of the Asian American community? You know, it, it's just a matter, it's a drumbeat, right? Like we have to keep banging that drum, keep talking about it. This is like not a trend to support Asian kind of businesses. It's not like something that's just a flash in the pan. This is something that we as a community have to come together and work together and just keep shining a light um, on the books, the movies, the people. Um, and so um, it's just like, again, start with one small step. One thing that you can do in the audience, um, whether it's supporting, uh, you know, a, your local Chinatown, which as we know, um, Chinatowns across the US and world really have been devastated by COVID-19. And so um, supporting your local Chinatown, supporting a small um, Asian owned business. I'm wearing this sweater from a brand called uh, Yan Yan Knits. And it's like young Asian owned, like they obviously take a lot of inspiration from traditional Chinese motifs. I'm drinking from a mug from like a Chinese restaurant in LA called Chifa that my friend Umberto started. And so like ways to support these AAI, AAPI businesses. So it's like one small step at a time and um, your dollars go farther when you're supporting minority owned businesses. Like this is what we know to be a fact. Um, there have been studies done about how dollars go farther when you're supporting small businesses and in particular minority owned small businesses. So um, take that first small step. It's manageable, you can do it and it makes a world of difference. Buy Asian, support Asian, retweet Asians, regram Asians, <laughs> tell Asian stories. I love 
Um, and it is AAPI Heritage Month. So uh, we're already almost at time. So in closing, I wanted to ask, you know, what what's your advice for today's generation of Asian Americans and the upcoming generation of Amer Asian Americans who are living through this moment, through this COVID moment of both rage and pride um, and how they could be heard and how they could speak louder and be a part of, you know, these mainstream conversations about identity and pride and, and joy? Yeah, I would say, first of all, like find your voice and find your people. And so um, it might be as something as, as kind of simple as like resharing. Um, there are two illustrators, one named Ruth Chan. Her Instagram is, o, I think it's called O Truth, something like that. Ruth Chan, she's like an acclaimed uh, Asian American illustrator. And so I remember that she made a lot of uh, illustrations around her feelings of rage and pride around the COVID-19 crisis and kind of just feeling proud to be Asian, but just kind of the rage, that, well, the violence that would be being brought against our community. And so it might be resharing re her art, taking that first step and finding the people that um, are allies and who will also help you amplify your message is so important. So um, I would say like, just lean into the feelings that you're feeling. So it can be pride, it can be rage, it can be just like, maybe don't lean into despair, lean into action to kind of get out of despair. But um, leaning into those feelings um, will help you take that first step of action. And once I think that you are doing things and changing the community, maybe you're volunteering for this amazing organization called Heart of Dinner, when you take that first step, I do feel like um, things will start clicking into place and you will find a sense of purpose um, and uh, help to elevate this community at large. Well, that's really great advice. And I love that you shouted out specific brands and people so that our viewers can follow up and, and follow them and, and amplify their work. Um, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have, it's gone by so fast. I could really talk to you for a lot longer, but thank you so much, Eva, for speaking with me. Thank you so much for speaking with me and go to sleep now. It's almost uh, midnight. I will. I will sleep soon. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.